Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullett. Uh, sadly, we're not in person any longer. I'm back in my closet, and Alexa, you're you're in your substantially nicer living room. Yeah, I enjoyed uh, being in the same room with you both because it was nice to like see you in three dimensions, um, but also my parents have... I think a nicer sort of like office space for recording than either you or I have. Like I have it like set up a little bit so that it looks like my office is nice, but it's very spare. Like I don't really have much furniture in it and the lighting is really bad. There's like, there's no overhead lighting. There's just like these weird lamps. So, um, so yeah, it looks okay on a zoom screen, but it's not, it's not ideal. I guess like that still makes me feel kind of young that it's like, nah, let's go to Alexa's parents' house and they got this sweet setup, you know? I got this shit <laughs> um, yeah, so speaking of our uh, last episode, the older episode, I feel like we got some nice feedback. We got a nice listener email who was like, you should have some really old people on. Uh, that made me feel better. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Yeah, like I appreciated that too. <laughs> yeah. I also happened to have a, a phone call with my doctor just for like the yearly like checkup that they do and they do like a blood test. And she told me that like all my values look good. And I was like, Oh, you know, actually I'm kind of surprised because I eat a bunch of stuff that like people say that you shouldn't. And she was like, well, you're still young though. And I was like, I kind of wanted to be like, thank you. (laughs) Wait, she told you someone who is over 40 years old that um, you are still allowed to eat whatever you want. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, she didn't say it that explicitly, but she was like, you know, like you're young. Maybe you're genetically lucky. I don't know. She wasn't like encouraging it, but she also wasn't like cut it out. So I feel like that's a blank check, basically. What are the kinds of crappy food that you eat? Oh, you know, like nothing but bacon. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or like... <laughs> like tonight uh we had brisket i made the brisket i don't know if you've ever had it it's like a very fatty cut of meat um Uh and uh i ate like a big just chunk of fat off of it and my uh girlfriend was like what are you doing like and i was like the fat's the best part and she's like a little bit of fat (laughs) attached to it is acceptable it's not acceptable just take a piece of fat and just like cram it in your mouth so yeah, that's 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 my diet is like lots of fatty and salty meats. Yeah. Um I feel like I also wait until my partner is not around to eat disgusting things. Um and so it's the first week of classes for us. Um and I wanted to do like a like an exercise where I had them do uh the prisoner's dilemma game and so I brought candy, like you know, like Halloween type candy. Um, to like give them points for like whatever they chose in the prisoner's dilemma game. And so like I kept the extra candy. And so basically like whenever I'm alone in the kitchen, I'm just like, like eating Whoppers and Kit Kats. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. It, uh, it reminds me of something, an anecdote that may or may not be true from Diedrich Stoppel's memoir, the famous fraudster that he uh, purchased all of this candy allegedly to give as a reward um, in these experiments that never happened. And so he had all this candy. So he would just like go park his car and sit in his car and just eat fucking bags of candy. Oh my gosh, what an image. I haven't read that. And now I kind of want to. (laughs) (laughs) It's worth reading. We can put a, we can put a link in the show notes. Um, Okay. So let's, let's stop dicking around and talk about what we're drinking. Alexa, what, what have you got? I've got a beer called Low Viz. 
India Pale Ale um, from Arches Brewery. I like that can. It's got sort of a like zigzag lightning thing going on. Yeah, it's got good colors, good sort of pastels. Nice. Mm-hmm. So as it happens, I also have an IPA. Uh, this is the uh, Boreal IPA du Nordest. Um, and it has, well, the can isn't quite as nice, but it has a little hop here. And it's like being used as a fishing lure. So I guess I'm like the the fish and this is the bait that's going to draw me in. I see. Very good. I also want to say one more thing about this beer, which is that it's described as um, silky tropical lime, um, like three separate adjectives. Um, and I feel like silky is a gross way to describe a liquid. Um, although generally I feel like it's a nice texture. Yeah. You generally don't want to think about something like coating the inside of your mouth in a silk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you about that. Veto the silky. All right. Well, um, shall we try it and you can give a full report. Okay. Sounds good. I like it. Um, I thought that I was going to have the word silky in my mind and that I wouldn't be able to like experience it as not silky in texture, but it doesn't, it just tastes like, it just tastes like the texture of beer. Mm. So this suggests priming is not real. <laughs> it's so weird because again and again, it seems like that's what we're concluding. I know. About. I know. And yet the experimental evidence is really unassailable. Overwhelming. Overwhelming. Yeah. Exactly. All right. I, <laughs> poured this badly and it's got a big head on it but i'm gonna try and drink it anyway Mm. yeah it's good it's just like a regular ipa okay all right we can roll with that so alexa i i have a question for you okay this is a hypothetical scenario right so you're gonna go on vacation so you have a a week's vacation time and you're planning to go Uh to a country that you've never visited before and where you don't speak the language And you have two options. Either you can go to an all-inclusive resort, which is just like you lie on a beach and you get fed and uh, the daiquiris are free. Or you can can travel around the interior of this country visiting different cities or nature. Maybe you rent a car. Maybe you take the train. But you're going to have to deal with, you know, not being able to speak the language. Maybe the accommodations aren't great. Maybe there's, you know, everything might not go perfectly. What do you pick? Great question. Okay, so I would definitely pick the second option, so the non-all-inclusive like all-inclusive resort option. But my answer is complicated because that's definitely – yeah, like I said, that's definitely what I would pick. Um, I don't think that's just a like um, – I also think that's definitely the socially desirable response. I don't think that I'm only giving the socially desirable response. I think that's actually what I would choose. I think it's also entirely possible that – um, did I, if I had the chance to go on both of these vacations that I would enjoy the, um, all-inclusive resort one more. Um, but I would certainly like feel a responsibility to do the more adventurous one. Um, and like, it would be lame to pick the all-inclusive resort one. Um, what would you say? Oh, I've, I would definitely do the travel around. I I don't think I've ever gone to an all-inclusive resort. Although, you know, what you were saying, I totally relate to that. Like, what if they're awesome? 
what if I'm like totally missing out and I would really enjoy it? You yeah. Know? <laughs> Just like consistently making the wrong choice. Okay, wait. So here's, I have a follow-up question. So imagine the same scenario, but in this case, the all-inclusive resort is like really cool. So it's not like you're doing the like adventuring yourself, um, but like they have great food and great drinks and the entertainment is like legitimately good and the like day trips that you can go on are like awesome and you learn a lot. They're really rewarding. Like, would you consider doing the like all-inclusive resort in that case? Yeah, if it was like not a lame all-inclusive resort. Yeah, that definitely makes it sound more attractive. And I think what you're getting at is this idea that like, well, the all-inclusive sounds like it would be comfortable and pleasant, but also kind of uh-huh. boring. And I feel like I might just get bored. Like after day three of not doing anything, I feel like I might get antsy. Um, so the the reason that we're talking about this example uh, is that I, I recently ran across a paper in Psych Review called A Psychologically Rich Life by Oishi and Westgate. Um, it's a recent paper. It's 2021. Um, and they argue that this idea of psychological richness, um, which they talk about is being basically like, do a lot of varied, interesting things happen to you? That They say that that's kind of an unrecognized component in what people want in a life. So typically, well-being researchers have talked about two different kinds of well-being. Um one is hedonic, and so that's just like imagine the the resort example of like you're you have all your needs met, you're comfortable, you're in stable surroundings, you're happy, um, you have close friends and family, stuff that really relates to like moment to moment sense of like felt happiness or well being, um, and then they contrast that with what they call uh, eudaimonic well-being, um, and, or it's sometimes called meaning in life. And that's really the feeling that you're part of something bigger, you're working on something meaningful. And that could be that you belong to a community that you value. It could be that you're doing work that you really value, that you're trying to achieve some social change you feel is important. It might come through religion. Um, but that's something that's also interesting to people. And often, you know, you would, the shorthand for that would be, do you want to live a meaningful life, mm-hmm. right? Versus a happy life. Um, and those have been shown empirically to be things that people value. Um, and that's what the research on well-being has looked at as sort of sometimes in opposition, right? Because there are obviously like you, um, might trade off one for the other. You might be like, well, this is going to make me less materially comfortable, but I'll be living a more meaningful life. And therefore I'm going to choose that, but not necessarily like you could, you could have both or neither as well. Um, and what this paper argues is that that leaves something out that, people, at least some people, also have a desire for variety, for novelty, for having lots of different interesting experiences. Um, And that's something that at least some folks would value even over having uh, a happy life or a meaningful life. So it's just, you know, you could think about just as a thought experiment, you know, you might have a life that's both happy and meaningful. So like, let's say you're financially comfortable, you have close friends uh, and family, 
Um, you're in a community that you really value. You're doing work that you think is really important, but it's kind of monotonous and repetitive, right? It doesn't afford you much like novelty or stimulation. Um, and that would be a life that's, you know, high in um, hedonic and eudaimonic well-being, but low in psychological richness. And what they're arguing is that, at least for some people, that would be kind of unattractive. They might be willing to trade off some of the other stuff in order to have greater psychological richness. So what did you make of this, like, just, I guess, first of all, this, like, broad argument? Like, does this seem reasonable to you? At first, I felt like, um, so you did a good job of describing a life that could be uh, happy and meaningful, um, but not very psychologically rich, I think. Um, initially, I was like, clear, like, I felt like psychological richness would clearly overlap quite a bit with um, with happiness and with meaning. Um, so like, I don't know when they sort of describe like, Oh, having, um, experiences that like change your perspective or are novel. I feel like those are often things that we, um, would characterize as meaningful experiences. Um, and I think sometimes we just experience, we experience happiness as a consequence of like variety and novelty. So, I started out kind of skeptical that this was like much of an advance on the ways that we think about well-being. Um, and over over reading, like over the course of reading the paper, especially because of like, I guess the way that they characterized in particularly, or sorry, in particular, a meaningful life or eudaimonic well-being, um, it seemed like there was room for this, uh, for this new concept of psychological richness. Um yeah, they characterize meaning in a way that seems to overlap a lot with like being sort of moral and virtuous and living consistently with one's values. Um, and they characterize psychological richness as like, um, I don't know, a lot of variability and, and in some ways like like experiencing drama and experiencing like tragedy and things like that. Um, so I guess I saw room for that concept. And in some ways it connects to like things that I hear people talk about when they talk about, um, I don't know, things that contribute to their well-being or quality of life or something like that. So I think people often talk about having life experience just sort of for the sake of life experience. Like I'm going to do this thing because I don't know, it'll be just an interesting life experience to have. And that that seems to align with with what the authors are claiming that this this is something that people value and contributes to the good life um and doesn't totally overlap with with the way that we have thought about um have categorized um well-being in the past so i became i became more convinced that this is a category that we haven't tapped into um and then they make various other claims in the paper, some of which I was convinced of and and some of which I didn't find as compelling. Yeah, I think we ought to get into the specific uh, empirical stuff that we thought was more or less compelling maybe after the break. Um, but I was struck by they have a study, I think a couple different studies where they code mm -hmm. obituaries 
and they have raters rate them for they, this is a multiple item measure um but basically uh does it seem like they lived a psychologically rich life where lots of interesting things happened does it seem like they lived a happy life and does it seem like they lived a meaningful life and in these obituaries psychologically rich life is actually negatively correlated with happy life which kind of makes sense if you look at some of the examples that they give where it's like this dude wrote a book that pissed off the Chinese government and so he had to flee his home and he was a refugee and he had to move around a lot and many of these things that like are psychologically interesting and varied also seem like they might make you kind of unhappy that was something that I found interesting about the characterization of the psychologically rich life. Um, so they they claim that like a psychologically rich life is a good thing, um, but also part of the way that they conceptualize it is like that it would include, yeah, unhappy events, right? Or like scary events or emotionally intense events that are sometimes negative. Um, and yeah, I mean... That is like a complicated idea that I think can um, sometimes be, I don't know, like misused or misexpressed or something like that. So um, it always actually sort of rubs me the wrong way when people suggest like, oh, yeah, I, I guess like whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger or like this idea of like post-traumatic growth that if we go through like traumatic experiences or tragedies that that somehow we come out of them better off and stronger and these these experiences are sort of um we should be like grateful for them and value them and things like that and i think that can be true i certainly think that um i wouldn't want to live a life that was like just purely positive affect and i think that you learn things from experiencing negative affect and things like that um but sometimes i think we like glorify um yeah struggling and uh, tragedy and things like that when we sort of think about the overall I want to say meaning but but I'll say psychological richness so we're sort of staying in the same vein um and yeah I don't know I think we should sometimes question that right so sometimes uh tragic events just really suck and they might not have this like silver lining of of making our life richer or something like that. Yeah, isn't it isn't psychologically rich almost sort of smuggling in some amount of positivity? Like that sounds good. But if you're like you're going to experience a lot of different traumatic events and they are going to change your perspective and they are going to hold your interest but they are going to be very painful and unpleasant. I think that would be formally consistent with the criteria that they propose for a psychologically rich life. But I think you would get few people who would be willing to sign up for that if you put it Mm -hmm. that way. And I do think you have a point that there's a temptation to just see all negative experiences as beneficial Mm -hmm. in some way. And it's this 
inherent optimism that we always want them to lead to some sort of growth or wisdom. And sometimes they just make you a worse Mm -hmm. person, like you're anxious or you have PTSD or you're depressed or you're physically unwell because of all this bad stuff that's happened to you. Like you mentioned the example of the uh, obituary of the the man who has to flee Hong Kong because he gets put on like an assassin, um, like to be assassinated list. And I was like, this feels a lot like, you know, we're like sitting here in the comfort of our own homes and reading this paper and we're like, yeah, cool. What a cool life. But then like, meanwhile, this guy is like afraid that he's going to get assassinated and has to leave his home as a refugee. Like, I don't know if he's like thinking like, oh yeah, what a rich experience. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Like, so they do talk a little bit about, well, what might produce differences in in desires for different kinds of lives. And, And they talk about a a deficiency model where basically you want what you don't have, right? And it might be that for those of us who've lived pretty safe, stable, and secure lives, we think, wow, that sounds so cool. And for the people who've actually had that experience, they're like, hell no, absolutely not. Give me a boring, you know, life in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, which... Yeah, they they talk a little bit about um, cultural differences potentially and how much this is valued. And I didn't look closely enough to sort of um, try to make some theoretical hypothesis about why you might see certain cultural differences. Um, But at least some of the examples and the way that they're characterized strike me as like a bit um, a bit sort of like Western in the in their take. It's definitely. I mean, it comes from a position of some amount of affluence that you're able to do this at all, right? If you're a subsistence farmer, then you're not worried about having a lot of varied experiences. And throughout most of our history, like as people, most people never went more than 10 or 20 miles from where they were born. Um, And they were more worried about meeting their basic needs. So this is, I think, definitely something that like requires a certain, you know, amount of social development such that you have the resources that you start thinking about uh, being able to travel and have lots of varied experiences and do different stuff. Yeah. Right, right, right. I mean, uh, it makes me think of like um, the movie. uh, What's that movie called? It has like Julia Roberts in it. um, And she like goes on like a, um, like a quest to find herself um. Oh, yes. E pray love, but that doesn't have. Ju- is Julia yeah, Roberts? Totally. In that, really? <laughs> oh, I've I never seen. I wanting to say live, laugh, love. <laughs> yes. Okay. E- <laughs> <laughs> Three words. Love was in there. Right. Um. But yeah, I mean, it's presented as this like, okay, the, here's the path to basically creating more. Um. I guess making your life better or making your life more into the good life or something like that. Um, But there's like a lot of luxury involved, right? Like in order to like go to all of these different places and have all of these experiences and travel these different kinds of foods. And I mean, I don't think I've actually ever watched this movie. So, um, so my critique is unfair. Um, But like, what is her job while she's going on this trip? How is she making money? Like, I don't know. It seems, it seems luxurious to me. Right. Right. Um, we're both criticizing a movie that we've we've never seen. And you know what? Like, I don't at least mean it as um, undermining the importance mm-hmm. of this, 
there's lots of things that people don't have the time and energy for when they're busy meeting their basic needs that then they can start to worry about when they have their basic needs met that we think are good, right? That like, for example, higher education. I think Uh that's a positive thing for people who get something out of it. I think it's great. And so I think you can think of this in the same way. Yeah. And I think, I mean, while I think you can sort of like trivialize um, negative experiences by thinking like, oh, these are cool or whatever. I think you can also, um, if you're, if you're sort of like in a privileged position, you could also be patronizing about those experiences and sort of like not recognize how they can contribute to i guess like someone's um someone's well-being or their wisdom or something like that um so i think that it's possible to like discount the contribution of like difficult or tragic events just as it's possible to sort of glorify um it um yeah there one of the parts of the paper that i found pretty I don't know, interesting to think about and also like sort of compelling in terms of the story that they're trying to tell um, is the the part about regret. Um, so they ask people to um, imagine undoing their life's biggest regret and whether that would make their lives psychologically richer. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, a third of people uh, claimed that it would make their life psychologically richer, um, suggesting that you know, maybe we regret experiences that sort of take what well, that that lead us down um, maybe like the more mundane or predictable road or something like that. Um, but yeah, I this like resonates with um, something that I've heard about regret. So I don't I don't do research on regret, but I've heard that we tend to regret um, inaction more than action. Um, so like not taking opportunities more so than like taking opportunities that don't work out well. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I resonated with the idea that, um, that, that you could like regret a decision that, um, that is like safer or um, makes your life more boring or something like that. Yeah. So that's um, my grad school advisor, Tom Gilovich has done a lot of this work on regret. And so my understanding is that it's definitely true that in the long term, people tend to regret inactions more than they regret actions. They tend to think I should have done this thing that I never did more so than I wish I hadn't done this thing that turned out to be a bad idea. And of course, you can question like whether that's actually a good guide to decision making, right? Maybe in retrospect, you've gotten used to the negative consequences of the bad decisions that you made, and you've been able to do, and this is Tom, I think, thinks of it in this way, is you've engaged in a lot of counterfactual thinking about what might have happened had you done that other thing. Maybe that's not right, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe... Uh, that counterfactualizing is actually misguided and it wouldn't have turned out in this really interesting or um, rewarding way that you think it would have. But it's definitely consistent with their finding that a substantial percentage of people um, say that undoing their life's biggest regret would have made their lives psychologically richer. So you had a suggestion. Maybe we can see whether this applies to us. 
Mm-hmm. I'm I don't know if I'm willing to do my life's biggest regret, but I do have a very uh-huh. a very salient regret, which I think does fit this very well. Um which is that when I was in grad school, SPSB was doing and they probably still are this like summer camp thing for grad students, but it was competitive and you had to apply. And I just completely spaced on the deadline. I just forgot to apply. And all my friends went and it seemed like an amazing time. And they had all of these incredibly uh, well enriching experiences. They met other graduate students. Mm -hmm. They met amazing instructors. Uh, They got to explore a new city. And uh, to this day, I'm like, God damn it. Why couldn't I have gotten my application? I mean, maybe they would have rejected me anyway. Right. But but I didn't even try because I was not paying attention. The regret that came to mind for me is also old. Um, so it was, yeah, even older than yours, actually, because it was when I was um, deciding where to go to college. Um, and so, yeah, I um, I grew up in Canada. I only applied to colleges in Canada. Um, and I ended up going to Western, which is... Um, like two hours away from Toronto where I grew up. Um, but I had also applied to UBC and I had gotten in there and that's like all the way across the country, uh, in Vancouver. And yeah, I mean, I still think about like what it would have been like if I had gone across the country and I didn't go because I was a wuss, like it just felt like too far away. And it's like, you know, there's a time difference and, you know, in order to see my family, I would have to fly and, Um, and I'm also not really sure why I think it would have been so different than where I went to college. Like, I just like, I don't know. They had such a, such a nice pamphlet. Like (laughs) it just looked so beautiful. Um, yeah. So sometimes I wonder what it would have been like, but yeah, I mean, this is very consistent with what you said about Tom's account of like, um, uh, yeah, thinking that we're engaging in a lot of counterfactual thinking and we have no way to actually like corroborate it. Um, and this is actually a feeling that I had um, as I was reading the paper. Um, and also when you asked me the initial question in the beginning about like, okay, which one of these two vacations would you choose? I sometimes feel like we are too quick to uh, dismiss the like hedonic option because we sort of see it as like superficial or um, or hollow or something like that. Um, and yeah, sometimes I wonder if the, we sort of bend over backwards to pick the sort of more rich or more meaningful choice sometimes at our like own expense. Like actually we would have just been, um, we would have been better off to, choose the comfortable option or something like that. Um, or yeah, that we're sort of bad at forecasting. So we think we're going to love this like really adventurous vacation, but actually we might hate it. And if we just sort of like picked the thing that would make us happy, um, we would have been, we would have felt better about that choice or something like that. Um, so I think of like discussions that I've had with people about, uh, ideal places to live in terms of weather. Um, and people will often say like, oh, I really like want to live somewhere where there are seasons and I could never live somewhere that has just like nice weather all the time that would get boring. And I wonder like, 
yeah, I wonder if they're wrong. But I've heard that weather doesn't impact people's well-being anyways. So I, you know what, just from personal experience, I highly doubt that finding. <laughs> I mean, I've heard that too. I've heard that said, um, there must be something else going on. These comparisons are hard. I do think that, like you were saying, that there's a lot of kind of class and sort of intellectual snobbery that gets kind of tied up in this. If you imagine, should we watch the challenging foreign film with subtitles <laughs> or reruns of Friends? You know, you know what? <laughs> reruns of Friends is the perfect example for the alternative. Right? Right. It's not even like a uh, more prestigious comedy. It's just complete, you know, lowbrow entertainment. And you know what the socially desirable answer is. And maybe in the wrong setting, you're like a little reluctant to be like, dude, I just want to watch mm -hmm. the Friends reruns. Yeah. I mean, that is a great example to characterize what I think is um, happening to some extent. Yeah. They found in the paper that one of the correlates of psychological richness um is openness to experience. And I think openness to experience is probably like quite high among academics. Another thing that they found that I thought was interesting was that uh, people who said that they lived psychologically richer lives were also more likely to um, have lower system justification uh, beliefs. So were less likely to... Um, yeah, endorse, endorse things that, that justify the system. Um, and that was something that I guess I wouldn't necessarily have predicted, but it sounds a little bit like the people who are reporting that they have these psychologically rich lives or, um, that, that they're people who want to like break the mold in some way. Um, and that we find something something rewarding or something that's worth pursuing in like paths that are sort of less traveled or like unscripted. Um, which made me wonder when we are prioritizing meaning or happiness, do we have like more of a script for those things? So, so the happy life, is it sort of like, the the life where you get a house and you know you pay all your bills and you have a stable job and a stable relationship and you have all of these sources of stability um or the meaningful life is that like it's less clear to me that the meaningful life seems scripted um and in fact i can sort of imagine that they would be antithetical but but certainly the happy life seems like it could be the sort of american dream or something like that yeah, there's like a conventionalism, unconventionalism aspect. So I didn't see in the paper, maybe I missed it, but I didn't see anything where they measured politics. Um, certainly system justification, which is just like how much you agree that society as it's currently constituted is fair, um, that there ought to be major changes made to make things more fair, that obviously would be reversed. Um, so you can think of it as kind of a proxy for liberal conservative. Mm -hmm. I think it's like, correlates quite highly with just like self-reported ideological placement. Um, so that correlates um, negatively with desire for a psychologically rich life. Openness, which we know correlates with uh, political ideology, correlates positively. Uh, liberals are more open to experience. Um, so you maybe could think of this as just a particular value system that's just more common among people who share a certain like social and political worldview. Mm -hmm. And 
helpfully, you know, that many of those people have the resources to attain this, right? So for, for a certain kind of subset of affluent people who are more left-leaning, more kind of in like knowledge jobs, like kind of broadly speaking, they're also well-paid enough to be able to travel and to be able to like do all mm-hmm. these things. Right, yeah. Yeah, you can sort of see how the sort of like person who leads the psychologically rich life or prioritizes that could be sort of could overlap with the stereotype of like a liberal snowflake who, you know, thinks that their experience is so unique and unusual and stuff like that. Yeah, there's maybe a little bit of like self-regard. I mean, again, like I'm not necessarily saying that to criticize. Like, I mean, I am those people and like I do. I think I, I think we should talk about our scores but I think I scored pretty highly on this scale. Um, so like, this is all about <laughs> me, right? But I do, it's I, it's interesting to me to think about how much of this is like specific to a kind of cultural orientation that I mm-hmm. share with some folks. So so yeah, um, they do helpfully put the individual difference measure of the extent to which you feel that you live a psychologically rich life um, in the paper. So it's in the appendix. It's a 17 item uh, measure. And uh, we both took it. And so we can determine empirically how much do we live a psychologically rich life. So Alexa, do you do you want to say your score first? This is a one to seven scale and she's going to tell you the average. Okay. So my score is uh, 5.76. What'd you get? Oh, wow. Uh, I have a mere 5.44. So, oh yeah, you are you are crushing me in psychological richness. Well, I mean, it's it's purely driven by the fact that I think that my move, my life would make a way better movie than yours would. So. Yeah, which is like a hundred percent true. So, <laughs> I I do feel that's a little bit of a a problem with the uh, with the item wording. I mean, just because nobody wants to make a movie about middle-aged Jewish professors doesn't mean that my life (laughs) is not psychologically rich. Yeah, I felt like I could categorize the questions into things that sort of like ask about my level of enjoyment with my life, which were like ones that I rated very highly. And then like questions that 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 feel like you have to sort of like take more of an outside perspective and ask like okay from from another person's perspective or from some kind of objective perspective like have you led an unusual or interesting life and there i gave myself lower scores like i certainly don't think anybody would want to watch a movie about my life um well i guess maybe you can make anything interesting but yeah i think you're selling yourself short um it is funny to to read these items. So as I understood the construct, it really is supposed to be purely about novelty, variety, and so on, and theoretically valence-free. But items like, I've had a lot of interesting experiences, or my life has been full of unique, unusual experiences, or my life consists of rich, intense moments— those all seem kind of positive. So if I had like fled Syria because of the civil war, like, I don't know if I would be a hundred percent. I've had a lot of interesting experiences. I mean, like objectively, I guess, yes. But like, is that the right way to mm-hmm. describe it? It just feels like it like doesn't quite fit the valence of that experience. Yeah. I know what you mean. Um, and even the ones that sort of like seem to be, 
seems to have a slightly different valence don't seem to capture the gravity of those kinds of experiences. So I'm pretty curious about your specific response to uh, item number eight. My life has been dramatic. Do you feel like your life has been traumatic? Well, I, uh, I gave it a, a, a six actually, but, but only because I got cancer and nearly died at like 27. So I feel like that's dramatic. It's not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Um, but but other than that, I well, I mean, I guess I got divorced. Is that dramatic? That's normal. I mean, this is that's the exact sort of like flip flop that I did as I was like trying to uh, decide what to answer this question. So I rated it a five because I've felt at times that my life feels dramatic, but I am very aware that if you sort of like step out of my shoes and look at the, if you look at like a timeline of my life, I couldn't even like really point to many events that could be characterized as dramatic. Um, So it's like, I know from an objective perspective that my life has not been dramatic, Um, but sometimes it feels like a lot of drama, you know? Well, right. So is this asking objectively, like on the scale of all human lives? Or is it asking to you, does it feel like your life is dramatic? Those are pretty different. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think we're probably overthinking this. Uh-huh. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So the show's on Twitter at Four Beers Pod, where you can at mention us, you can DM us. I at least will see that. Um, if it needs Alexa's attention, I will send it to her as well. Uh, you can also email. Uh, the show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com, and that will forward to all of us. We've got some really nice listener emails, which we always appreciate. So please uh, keep those coming. Finally, the show's website is fourbeers.com, where you can listen to any of our episodes. You can also use the contact form there to drop us a line. If you like, uh, if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us um, on iTunes. It really helps other people uh, discover the show. Alexa, anything else uh, you wanted to mention? Nope, that sounds good. Sweet. All right. What are you drinking? So um, I picked this up uh, right before I came home to record this podcast with you. And I took a look at the can and it was an IPA. And it's from Athletic Brewing Company. It's called Run Wild. And I was like, 
haha athletic brewing company what a stupid name for a brewery like there's nothing athletic about drinking beer and then i realized that it is non-alcoholic beer oh no (laughs) so this is uh this beer contains less than 0.5 percent alcohol wow i'm curious whether it tastes weird to you uh yeah i'll be i'll be interested to try it i have drank more non-alcoholic beer than usual recently because i have um i have a couple of friends who are sober and they've like started drinking um non-alcoholic heineken um and i find it like this this may be revealing in a negative way but i find it like fun to drink these non-alcoholic beers with them it feels like social in a slightly different way <laughs> um, that's super weird and i am grossed out by up, the idea yeah. of non-alcoholic it's <laughs> <laughs> disgusting and i'm gonna continue to drink this boreal ipa i i had a big can and it's kind of strong and so i split it up over two glasses so i don't that's that's a bit cheating so i guess we're both like mickey would be ashamed of us yeah, I think so. Yeah. He would be like, wow, it took you four episodes to just, become... <laughs> to just get off the beer train. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> All right, well, crack that open. I want to hear what it tastes like. This is quite bad. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't actually have to drink it. If you're like actively not enjoying it, I feel like you should not have to drink it. We'll see. Okay. I still have a bit of my other beer left over, so we'll start with that. That seems good. Can, can you describe the ways in which it's bad? Yeah, it's like sort of, I mean, it's a little watery, which I think is okay. I like some beers that are watery, um, like I'll drink a Corona Light and be perfectly happy. Um, but I think because it's trying to be an IPA, it's like, it's got this sort of like watery sort of like toothless nature about it, but then it's trying to capture, I guess, like the bitterness of an IPA. So it's like, it has... It has just like the bad elements. Yeah, combine the bad elements of of like a light beer with the sort of off-putting elements of an IPA, like without any of the good elements of either. That's what it is. Wow, that sounds truly terrible. They've really yeah. nailed it. <laughs> I feel like we ought to encourage all of our listeners to go out and try this beer and see if it's actually as awful <laughs> as you say. <laughs> all right, this episode has been sponsored by, what is it again, Alexa? Athletic Brewing Run Wild. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Thank you for sponsoring our show. Okay. um, Let's see. What were we going to talk about? We were going to talk about some of our empirical reactions to the paper. So, like, overall, I I found it to be quite convincing. But the least convincing part to me, kind of sadly, as a social psychologist, were the just lab experiments. Mm -hmm. They just did not seem that strong. So, for example, the researchers would ask people to look at a picture that had like uh, a figure ground reverse. You can look at it in one way, it's the moon. You can look at it another way, it's a woman's face. Or a match control picture that was just sort of a crappy picture of the moon. And then they had them give ratings of how psychologically rich that experience was and they gave higher ratings when they looked at the figure ground picture like it just didn't really seem to get at it right am i yeah am i crazy no i had the i had the same reaction so that was one example another example of one of these like sort of study the studies that's trying to get at the causal relationship between i guess a certain kind of experience and people's response of feeling 
um, this sense of psychological richness. They had participants listen to um, a man named uh, Suji playing Chopin on the piano. Um, and there were two conditions. So one in which they were told that Suji is blind and one in which they were not told this information. Um, and again, that's sort of, I think the the theory is that when they're told that Suji is blind, um, that there's this sort of like um, surprising aspect or like a change in perspective, which they say is like part of psychologically rich experiences. And so as a result, people said that they found the experience more rich when they, they knew that he was blind as opposed to when they were not told this information. Um, and then in this, in this study, the P value for that difference is 0.05, um, which sounds about right for a manipulation like that. Um, yeah, I mean, in some ways, like, yeah, these, these experiments struck me as like pretty cheesy um i'm not sure if there i mean there are probably experiments that that i think could have been much stronger that would have been much much harder to run than the ones that they ran um i do sort of sympathize with the challenge of studying um i guess like a concept as sort of broad and um deep as the idea of like well-being um within the context of lab experiments that seems challenging to me and i'm not i'm not sure how valuable those attempts are um obviously the idea is that you're sort of like trying to tease out the causal direction so many of the studies are correlational um you know perhaps people who tend to think of their life as psychologically rich are more likely to um choose certain kinds of experiences um, but they did do one, one study, which is not, I guess, a, a traditional experiment, but like a, a quasi-experimental design where uh, they compared the psychological richness experienced by students who had either gone on study abroad or students who had considered going on study abroad but ended up staying home. And that felt more compelling to me. Um, I know you can't have random assignment in these situations, but it just seems to, I don't know, it, it seems to capture more what they want to um, draw claims, make claims about or draw conclusions about um, rather than these sort of uh, like tr sort of trivial experimental manipulations. Yeah. I mean, you could say, Alexa, you're being really harsh. But I do think if you look at particularly, you can look at this in the paper, which we, um, which we'll put in the show notes. They they do reproduce the actual stimuli, which is nice, um, and then they give the items on which they were rated. So they didn't directly ask people to rate how psychologically rich is this uh, picture that you're looking at. They're asking them to rate um, interesting, boring, what obviously reversed. Uh, Intriguing. Oh, psychologically rich is in there. Um, surprised, unusual, typical. And okay, yeah, I believe that the figure ground picture would be rated as a little more of those things. Mm -hmm. Does that really get at the concept in an, in a way that's satisfying? Not to me. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, it. 
I feel maybe the lab experiment with the tight control is just not the right way to get at such a big construct. Maybe you just can't get there with these pretty impoverished stimuli. In a way, I feel that the the blind pianist study is is a little better, but even there you could say, yeah, it's more interesting that this blind mm-hmm. guy learned to play piano really well, right? It's almost like tautological to me. What did you think of the um the confirmatory factor analysis results? Oh boy. Um I gotta <laughs> admit I skimmed those a little. <laughs> Do you I was have... hoping that you would have a strong opinion. I was just going to disagree with you, regardless of what you said. Um, yeah, that was at the point in the paper where I was I was still more skeptical that it even makes sense to treat this as like a third separate um, dimension or 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 construct or whatever. Um, and yeah, I mean, they do these like confirmatory factor analyses, but they don't do, um, or at least they don't report in this paper exploratory factor analyses. And I kind of, I kind of feel like some of the items that they're using to assess psychological richness would load pretty well onto um, the dimension of happiness or d- the dimension of meaning, and they like compare the three factor model to various versions of two factor models, like where they're combining richness with meaning or richness with happiness. And I don't think the three factor model is like dramatically better than these other two factor models. So yeah, I don't know. At that point in the paper, I still had the sort of stance, like, uh, you're just trying to like, come up with a new theory uh, for the for the sake of it kind of thing. Um, I have a little bit of that like taste left in my mouth by by the end of the paper. Um, but I did find, yeah, some of the like the obituary studies and things like that where sometimes you see these dimensions like correlating negatively or something. like eventually, I was more persuaded that it was interesting to look at psychological richness independently. Yeah, so I I have to admit I'm more convinced by the mm, what existence proof isn't exactly right, but like almost thought experiments of yeah, these things are separable, and then there's empirical evidence that they do in fact separate under certain conditions, and it makes sense to me. That if you're asking people, these these are all written in a way that they're somewhat positive. And so there's some people who are just doing better overall, and there's some people who are just doing worse overall. And so it makes sense to me that maybe you could get a factor structure that's like all the nice things go together or most of the nice things go mm-hmm. together, right? Yeah, that doesn't seem crazy to me. I do... I like the studies where they force people to choose. So if, if, you know, you have to choose your ideal life, would it be the happy life, the meaningful life, or the psychologically rich life? This is figure two. And they did this cross-culturally, which I think is really nice. So one thing that's noteworthy is that the psychologically rich life is in almost every every country, the least popular. 
So if you can only, I, I read this as you can only have one of three. I'm not quite sure mm -hmm. that subjects read it in that way as well. You might say like, what's your highest priority or something. But the way I'm reading it is, you know, you, your ideal life is this, not the other ones. Um, and except for in Korea, where rich life just barely edges out meaningful life, uh, in all the other countries, rich life comes in third. So in the U.S., for example, if I make this big, uh, it's 13.2% who would choose mm -hmm. the rich life compared to 24.7% who would choose the meaningful life, 62.2% who would choose the happy life. So happy life is always the most popular everywhere. And I think that supports my reading of people see the implication as, well, your life would be psychologically rich, but not especially happy. And people are like, I don't want that. So yeah, most people in every country choose happy life over the other two. The thing I was kind of wondering about is this is a forced choice that forces you to choose one thing and presumably sort of implies, well, if you choose one of the other one thing, then you can't have the other two. And I wonder how people would feel about you know, trade-offs at the margin rather than choosing one of the three. So for example, let's say you could make your life 10% less happy. What percentage more psychologically rich would it need to be to compensate for that? Like how much mm -hmm. happiness would you be willing to pay in order to make your life like, let's say, 50% psychologically richer? I don't know whether that's mm -hmm. a, a task that you could actually give to people or whether they just don't know how to think about things in that way. But that was something mm -hmm. that I thought was so, sort of an interesting and more realistic way to think about it, because in reality, that is what we're doing, right? We're We're saying... In this particular situation, I could make my life a little happier or a little richer. Which do I want? And there's going to be trade-offs between those. And I imagine diminishing marginal returns to like really maxing out happiness. At a certain point, you're like, okay, is being 10% happier really gonna gonna do much for me? Maybe I want to spend some of that happiness and buy myself some psychological richness in trade. You're looking quizzical. I feel like I'm not making any sense. No, you're making a lot of sense, but I'm wondering like about your intuitions about what people would choose. So I I feel like one thing that people might be thinking when they choose happy life over like let's say a meaningful or a psychologically rich life is that um that a, like a happy life encompasses the other ones or something like that. So like you can have it all if you choose the happy life. Um, as opposed to choosing the rich life in which you might not be happy or the meaningful life in which you might not be happy or there might not be richness or something like that. Like I always sort of have the feeling um, and yeah, like the reading through this paper and thinking about this more, I started to question this, question this feeling more, but in some ways I feel like you can sort of imagine all of the like, meaningful experiences or the psychologically rich experiences ultimately resulting in happiness. And so choosing happiness is like the way of, um, I guess, picking the ultimate outcome of the other things or something. Yeah, that's interesting. So that would sort of artificially boost 
the appeal of happiness, right? If people are understanding it as, well, this is the option where I get to have it all, um, then they would obviously be more inclined to pick that. And it would look like people are more attracted to that than they actually would be if you like, let's say, defined it in a more narrow way. So if you said like secure and comfortable or something like right. that. Yeah. Like, I guess another way to think of it is like, if you think that um, choosing a psychologically rich life um, can go either way, uh, then you might not choose it. But if you think like you only want a psychologically rich life insofar as it brings you happiness, then you might as well just pick happiness, right? So you could you can imagine a psychologically rich life that is one that makes you feel a lot of positive emotions and then you would want it. But if you imagine a psychologically rich life where you're like terrified all the time and depressed and anxious, then you don't want it. So picking happiness feels like, yeah, picking the end or something like that. Yeah. So if you imagine that like a genie appears and says, I can make your life twice as interesting, but I'm not going to tell you whether that's <laughs> right. I think I would say no deal. I would want some guarantee of valence before I signed up for that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm picturing. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, you know, you could design this task such that it didn't have that issue. I mean, the issue is with happy, mm -hmm. which I think you're saying, and I, I agree with this, almost gets treated as like a meta yes. um, thing to maximize, that you, you think of it as including all these other things. Uh-huh, right. And. Yeah, I understand that like when psychologists use happy, they mean something more circumscribed than that. Um, but yeah, I think it gets sort of conflated. It gets treated like good or something like that, just yeah. like universally positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so if you ask a layperson, could you have a truly happy life that wasn't meaningful? Then maybe lots of them would say no. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that I is. That's true. Yeah, that that's definitely an issue. So, I, I, so much of this obviously depends on the exact instructions that you give the participants. Which, in, in this case, I'm I'm not quite sure. So maybe they did tell them something like a, a secure, comfortable, stable, uh, to to make it less uh, less likely that people are going to choose happy as like the kind of globally outcome maximizing choice, right? That kind of encompasses everything else. So I feel like this is kind of all I had to say about this uh, this paper. Was there anything else that you wanted to hit on that you feel like we left out? I have a final question, which is, um, and maybe, maybe you sort of answered this with your like, I would say no to the genie um, who offers me an interesting life. But to the extent that people do value psychological richness, uh, in and of itself and not for like the impact that it has on happiness or meaning. Like, why would, why would that be the case? Like, what is it that's inherently value about valuable about like novelty and variety and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I think you can answer that question in like proximal terms, what's psychologically motivating you. And then in more like ultimate, you know, why should we have evolved a certain way? terms. And to me, the psychological answer is too much comfort is boring. Mm -hmm. And uh, Aaron Westgate researches boredom. 
And so I'm not surprised that she's on this paper because um, psychological richness is, I think of it almost as anti-boredom. So if you're too mm-hmm. comfortable and things are too easy, it just, it gets old and mm-hmm. you want to change things up a little bit and you want some variety and you're willing to sacrifice some ease and comfort to get that variety. Yeah. Aren't there, maybe you, you'll know the citation for this, you all, otherwise I can look it up. Um, aren't there studies that, that show that people, if you just leave them in a room for a long time with like a way to shock themselves, they eventually yeah, just they'll shock them. shock themselves. I, I, they cite it in this paper and we'll, we'll put this site in the, well, with the link in the show notes. Yeah. And I a hundred percent would, if you left me in a room for 30 minutes with just a shock machine, I'd start playing around with that thing and see what it did. Absolutely. I, if I recall correctly too, that, that study has been replicated and, and, and people continue to shock themselves in the replication. Yes. I find that study to be incredibly believable. Yeah. So <laughs> there's just something about sameness, even if it's a comfortable sameness that is aversive, at least to many folks. And I think that a desire for richness per se, for me, comes mostly from that, that when things are too safe and easy and comfortable, I start to get bored and I start to want some variety. Yeah. Basically YOLO, right? (laughs) Basically YOLO. Um, Oh, and I guess, right. They, and they allude to this in the, in in the paper as well, but then the ultimate explanation might be something like the organisms have a trade-off between exploring and exploiting. And that if you do too much exploiting, that is you sit in one place and you like enjoy what's there, then you miss out on even better opportunities that you might've found by exploring. So you want some balance between the two. So eventually the organism should be motivated to explore. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Like you could miss out on how enjoyable it is to shock yourself if you don't try it yeah, once. Maybe shocking yourself. Actually, you know what? Like we did a study um, where we asked people to shock themselves and you better believe that I cranked that machine up to the maximum to see what it was like. I wasn't uh-huh. going to like not not see what it was like. And indeed, it was quite unpleasant. It's not an experience <laughs> I recommend. <laughs> that fucker hurt. It was no fun. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, despite our critical comments, uh, I really enjoyed the paper. Um, I thought it was thought-provoking, and I think it's going to stimulate a lot of new research. And for the most part, I found it empirically and conceptually very convincing. So um, yeah, two thumbs up. Cool. 